0: Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive.
1: I was willing to be a martyr for a cause. It is a cause in which I believe very strongly. It is a cause which involves uh, tremendous injustice, which I saw, which I felt that I could do something to alleviate. Uh, It is a cause which, in biblical terms almost, I saw as a a fight between evil and good, between light and darkness. And maybe I'm a bit self-righteous, but I strongly believe in the freedom of choice. I believe that women should have a right to own their bodies. I believe they should have a right to safe medical abortions when they need them. I think it's one of the great issues of our time, uh, where indeed uh, an enlightened philosophy which respects the dignity of the individual is sort of pitted against uh, what I consider an ideology which is totalitarian, which is disrespectful of people's opinions and uh, convictions, and which condemns so many women to danger of life and health and so on.
2: That was a clip from an interview with Dr. Henry Morgenthaler that aired on CBC's The National back in 1977. I'd wager most kids walking out of high school history classes in this country couldn't tell you who Morgenthaler was or what his contributions were to fighting for access to abortion in this country. And probably most of us as adults remain ignorant of this too. So maybe it's time for a refresher. Morgenthaler was a Polish Jew who emigrated to Canada after surviving the horrors of Auschwitz and Dachau. In Canada, during the 70s, he then went on to perform hundreds of illegal abortions, which eventually landed him in a Quebec prison for 10 months. This week, we have been hearing a lot about the prospect of Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court in the United States, and the ripple effects that that move could have throughout that country. Well, In Canada, we don't have Roe or Wade. We have Morgenthaler. Canada's landmark legal decision for abortion access is known as R. v. Morgenthaler, a decision that made it clear that the government could not dictate how or where women accessed abortion services. And that decision came more than a decade after Roe v. Wade. This week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he's assigned two ministers to review the legal framework around abortion access in Canada to ensure, quote, that not just under this government, but under any future government, the rights of women are properly protected, end quote. Canada's Families and Social Development Minister Karina Gould said on Power in Politics that Canada would be accepting Americans who find it difficult or impossible to access abortion services in their home country.
3: I mean, I don't see
4: why we would not, I mean, if people come here and need access, certainly, um, you know, that's a service that would be provided.
2: That abortion access is a necessary health care service is an issue that has largely been settled with most federal political parties in Canada, though debate still wages in the Conservative Party. Getting to this point was not easy, though. Many people fought long and hard for abortion access, and it's not exactly ancient history. Even as recently as 2016, advocates in PEI took their province to court to have the local abortion ban overturned. Today, we will talk about the fight that was waged to gain these rights, and hear from some of the women who were on the front lines of that fight. They'll also talk about how easily they fear those hard-earned rights can be eroded. I'm Sarah Larniuk, I'm the senior producer of this show, and I'm sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Christabel Sethna is a historian and associate professor who teaches at the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies at the University of Ottawa. She joins me next. Wait for it. Hi, Professor Sethna. Thanks for joining me.
3: You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Maybe we just start with your background,
2: because I find the area you study so interesting. You specifically study history of sex education, contraception, and abortion. How did you end up in that particular realm? Oh
3: my goodness, how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the whole area of reproduction fascinates me. I began with the history of sex education, and then I was lucky enough to do a postdoc specifically about a history of the birth control pill in Canada and its impact on young university-aged students. And at that time, we had this very strange situation in Canada when technically the birth control pill was available, even though contraception was illegal, Um, but doctors could prescribe the birth control pill and it was usually prescribed to married women not single women so single women were left in the lurch i started coming across accounts of university aged women who were writing about going to different cities seeking out abortions through these underground networks underground abortion providers in different locations in canada so I started becoming attuned to this idea of women traveling for abortion services. And then over time, I pursued this angle more vigorously and then received another series of grants uh, to study women traveling nationally and internationally for abortion services.
2: Given your expansive knowledge about the history of uh, access to abortion services, it might almost sound wild to you that like a lot of people don't even know the basics, but I wondered if you could take us back to the 60s. How did access to abortions even come about in in Canada?
3: Abortion was illegal in Canada. And then in the 60s, we see a movement on the part of patients, politicians, lawyers, lawyers, and significantly the medical profession to try and work with an abortion law or a number of abortion laws in Canada that were confusing and oftentimes contradictory. So the medical profession at the time raised concerns about the possibility that they would lose their professional status, They might be uh, subjected to prison terms. So inevitably, a new government, uh, this is the Liberal government, starts moving toward revision of the Criminal Code. And we see something called the Omnibus Bill. And the Omnibus Bill uh, comes into play in 1969. So the, the sort of top three takeaways from the Omnibus Bill is that contraception is legalized and abortion is liberalized. Abortion remains within the criminal code and it's approved, it's legal, but under very restrictive conditions. And sometimes people also forget that at the same time, homosexual acts between consenting adults are now also legalized. So these are the big three
2: there was obviously other landmarks that came down the road but between 1969 when that happened and 1988 when the next significant step forward came
3: what was access like so this new abortion law that came into play in 1969 worked like this it meant that a woman first had to get a referral from her family doctor and of course not all women had family doctors the abortion Could only be done in an accredited hospital, and not all hospitals were doing abortions. In that hospital, there had to be a therapeutic abortion committee. The therapeutic abortion committee was composed of about three, four, possibly five doctors. And the only guidance in the law said that the pregnancy could be legally terminated if it posed a threat to the life or the health of the woman. But the law never disclosed or defined what life or health meant. So it was up to the therapeutic abortion committees or individuals on those abortion committees to decide what the criteria for life or health meant. And women had to go forward to plead their case. can you imagine the confusion and the length of time this would have taken? So very few women could go through this therapeutic abortion committee and come out the other side with a safe abortion in a timely fashion.
2: Well, and then one of the obvious people to bring up here is Henry Morgenthaler and the role he played. I wondered if you could explain a bit about how he Was responsible for pushing boundaries at that time?
3: Well, Henry Morgenthaler is an absolutely fascinating figure. He was a Holocaust survivor. He eventually became a doctor uh, with a practice in Montreal. And then he began providing women with abortions in a way that broke the 1969 law, because the 1969 law was very clear that illegal abortion could only be conducted in a hospital in and in an accredited hospital. So by operating on women and providing them with abortions in his Montreal clinic, he was breaking the law because the woman was not going through these required legal steps. As a result of his work, he was arrested. He went to trial. He went to jail And eventually, these court cases made their way to the Supreme Court of Canada. In January 1988, the 1969 law was struck down, saying that it was unworkable in a decision that's known as R. V. Morgenthaler. So once this law was struck down, there was no federal law guiding abortion in the country and this was a huge victory for henry morgenthaler and his supporters and the legions of feminist and pro-choice activists
5: revered as a hero by some denounced as a murderer by others one thing both sides can agree on morgenthaler
6: changed the course of history in this country Ultimately, he opened clinics across the country wherever he felt women were at risk. And like clockwork, there were raids, protests, charges, and worse, violence. My name is Deb Miller, and I'm a retired family lawyer. Practiced family law for 40 years. have always been active in the feminist circles, particularly in reproductive rights issues. And I graduated from law school in 19... 78 so the law hadn't even changed yet so we were basically still in the situation where we were looking at case after case uh usually involving Henry Morgenthaler to fight to get the law changed abolished whatever and so we became quite friendly with Henry Morgenthaler who is you know was my personal hero and our problem in Alberta was that although it wasn't illegal we had no access because there was a therapeutic abortion committee comprised of three men usually and they were six or seven weeks behind. You had to get approved within eight weeks. So anyway, as as I'm fond of saying, you had to basically book your appointment with the therapeutic abortion committee before you even screwed anyone. So that access was the problem. And so one day we were just our group was sitting around and somebody said, Well, you know. Our problem is access. So we walked across the street to my office, and we actually phoned Henry Morgenthaler in Montreal. And he answered. The law had already changed. It it was after 1988, and he uh, basically then was on a crusade to open up abortion clinics across the country. And we said, here's our problem. And he said, build it, and I will come. (laughs) And, you know, that was the start of it. We then had to work on finding doctors who would do abortions and somehow keeping this very secret from the other side. And uh, it was a pretty exciting time. We got firebombed once, I think. Uh, The people, like our architect, got uh, picketed at his home and he quit on us. And uh, there was ups and downs. I remember talking to Henry and saying, oh, the architects quit. We'll never get this done. And he said, Debbie, you cannot give in to those zealots. He was just that kind of guy, Uh, and so the day of the clinic opening was really, really exciting. I could get every feminist in in Edmonton involved. Uh, We used their spouses and partners to form a phalanx of people to get women into the clinic. So it was pretty darn exciting time.
2: Okay, so we have this period, late '80s and the '90s, where Henry Morgenthaler and other supporters are, you know, opening up as many clinics as they can across the country. But I guess I'm wondering if that really succeeded in solving the access problem from coast to coast.
3: Well, for some women, it worked very well because they were able to get an appointment and have an abortion. But other women are left out of the equation rural women, Indigenous women, women living in the North, poor women, young women, women from Eastern Canada, they're still having a hard time and it's difficult for them to get the funding to travel. So what ended up happening in the study that Dr. Marion Duell and I did is that we found that the younger the woman was, And the poorer the woman was, the further she had to travel. So although the court in 1988 recognized that travel was a major burden for women to subsume, we see that same factor at play post-1988.
2: Some of your, your research uh, really pointed out the disparity in access for, for people of lower socioeconomic standing at, at the very least. Um, 60% of women who responded made less than $30,000 a year, 23.8% uh, made less than $10,000 per year, and 97 were receiving social assistance. What does that tell you about who is accessing abortion services?
3: Well, definitely it is marginalized women and younger women and poorer women. And what we can see from the statistics is that it could also be a function of their youth. So the younger um, a woman is, the more likely she is to be poor. These statistics also reflect regional Disparities. It has got better, but there are still pockets of women who are left out. And I want to point out, particularly for women from the North and Indigenous women, many of them have to come into the Southern cities for childbirth purposes, not just for abortions. And this kind of travel is already baked into medical systems in the northern regions of this country. So we have to think about abortion as one point in a larger framework of inequalities operating within the medical system in Canada. But we do tend to focus a lot on abortion. The broader picture is that it is part and parcel of inequalities that exist already in this country.
4: My name is Colleen McQuarrie. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Prince Edward Island, and I've been an abortion activist for most of my reproductive life. In relation to abortion access in Canada, Prince Edward Island was unique for a number of decades in the sense that when the abortion ruling came in, the Morgan Tyler ruling in 1988, that was basically meant to allow better access across Canada, PEI doubled down and declares ours a province that would be free of abortion. And so, for 30 years, we had a, a network here where we helped women to get off the island to access safer abortion services. In 2010, we undertook a community based collaborative action research project documenting the harm that 30 years of an abortion ban had done to us in our communities. And so, what was heart-wrenching, even to us activists. It was just the deep level of emotional and physical harm. Every single participant in our project talked about how before they even tried to access local service, which they knew was non-existent, but they were hoping that they could somehow try to self-induce an abortion. We were overwhelmed with the reach of that project. Within three days, we had... More than 600 shares in more than 11 nations. And we started to
3: get a sense. Sorry, I get emotional. (laughs) We started to get a sense of the diaspora.
4: And as a lead researcher and a person who grew up here and trying to start this project, a number of people had said, we're tired, we don't think that this will make any difference. And uh, nobody's gonna participate. And by the time they were coming back to the table, people had fallen silent for about a decade. And so this project was one of the first sort of steps on the path to reclaiming abortion access. And uh, I think I got so emotional because I realized the impact that asking a simple question can have to starting and reigniting the empowerment of people who had been so hurt. The simple question was, what are the harms that have happened as a result of a banning abortion in Prince Edward Island? And so, (laughs) launch the question and three days later have more than 600 responses from more than 11 countries and have people say thank you for finally asking this question and they said I had to leave PEI to get an abortion and I could never go back right so the level of stigma and shame and harm that we endured here was phenomenal. The the myth that we'd been told that, oh sure, you just have to leave PEI to get an abortion. It's not that hard. A myth was that it was easy, but it was never easy. Um, The indignity when you did get on public transit to, to get on a bus and bleeding after an abortion. And one woman talked about, you know, putting down a plastic bag on the on the public transit bus so that she wouldn't bleed all over the bus. And partway through the drive back to PEI, there's a stop where you can get off and go to the bathroom and, and get a coffee. And she talked about looking down and seeing the blood in the seat and thinking, how am I going to get out of this? Like So she tied something around her waist so that the blood... Wouldn't be obvious to everybody. There's no dignity when you treat women so poorly. I just didn't know I would cry with you today. I have no idea what's going on. Like I've given hundreds of interviews about this, and I've always had a level of, I guess, composure. But today, for some reason, it's it's hitting hard. You know, we wrote a book about it, so I uh, I can't give all the details, obviously, but. Uh, At the end of the day, the politicians refused to look at the evidence, refused to repeal the ban on abortion. And we were able to, um, with the help of LEAF Canada Legal Education Action Fund, we took the province to court and we served the papers in January of 2016. And at the end of the day, we won. I mean, the legal system in Canada is different from the legal system in the United States. But our experience here in Prince Edward Island was that this province decided it would thumb its nose at the constitution. And since 1988 up until 2017, continued to thumb its nose at women's experiences, at people who needed abortion's experiences, and continues to thumb its nose in some way because the the access we were promised hasn't been completely delivered upon yet. And so I don't think politicians in Canada are any different from politicians in any other part of the world, to the extent that they think that it can be self-serving to sacrifice people's human rights. And so that is why, I guess I get so emotional. What could they do to us here to remove Our capacity to use Morgan Tyler, because if we hadn't had that 1988 decision that basically said you can't prohibit access to abortion in clinics and then subsequent governments have not weighed in, they haven't given us a federal law.
2: How does racial inequality fit in with that access and that need to travel?
3: Pregnancy, abortion, contraception, sterilization, they've all been shot through throughout history with inequality and particularly class and racial inequality. We know that historically the eugenics movement Targeted the differently abled or, or the disabled, immigrants, indigenous, and poor. So these were the othered in our society. So we need to start paying attention to solving the problem of racial inequality and economic inequality alongside ensuring that abortion access is on the agenda for this country.
2: Yeah, it would be a real mistake to say that abortion is just about abortion right it's it's about one piece of a, a very large and complicated puzzle.
3: And there is also another factor that that we are increasingly taking into consideration and that is the needs of trans individuals right? And the trans population mm-hmm. and their reproductive needs. Right, And uh, one of my PhD students is doing wonderful work on egg freezing and the kind of family formation. Trans health needs are different health needs. Mm-hmm. And that's also becoming increasingly part of the framework of reproductive justice.
2: Okay. And the other landmark that I found astonishing took so long in Canada was the approval
3: of Okay, uh, Miphi gimezo. Am I saying that right? Even I have trouble saying this this word, and this <laughs> is why most people say miffy. Okay, m-
2: miffy then. Anyway, the the pill that essentially allows someone to gain access to an abortion through pills that you can pick up at a at a pharmacy. And Canada was the last industrialized country to approve this medication's use, and that didn't happen until 2015. Whereas in the states, it was approved in 2000.
3: Do you have any insight about why that moved so slowly here? I wish I could tell you this is a research project in the making. We can assume that there was bureaucracy involved. When the 1988 law was struck down by the Supreme Court in Canada, we see a growth in anti-abortion activism. So that is a major player in what's happening in the 1990s and the 2000s. Another way of looking at it, the much more cynical way of looking at it, is that our history shows that the medical profession wants to maintain control over women's bodies. That is the cynical interpretation. And it is borne out historically.
2: I spoke with Colleen McQuarrie and a number of other women And I I heard kind of repeatedly, especially after the, the leaked decision came up, that they're just exhausted. Like, these women who have fought for this access are just exhausted. I wondered what you hear in your research from people who work in this area about, like, just, like, the like it just never ends right like you you take this step forward and then like you end up fighting the same fight again or you fight it somewhere else or what do you hear from people
3: has there been progress absolutely yes on the other hand is there backlash yes i want to remind everyone that after the 1988 decision anti-abortion activism increased to the point of targeted assassinations. Three doctors were shot at, not killed, but they were shot at. Morgenthaler was attacked by a man with a, a pair of garden shears in the United States. Doctors were shot and killed and clinics were firebombed.
2: I did hear that from the woman who started the one in Edmonton. She said it was firebombed. Yes. It was just like, Wow. Yes. Okay. That That's actually putting your, your life on the line to offer these services.
3: Exactly. So the triumphalism around the striking down of the 1988 abortion law in Canada has to be tempered with everything that happened next. And it is extremely foolish to believe, and I can say this as a historian who takes the long view, it is extremely foolish to believe that for every step forward, we don't take 10 steps backward. And part of the reason why we're seeing this inequality because there's progress in some directions, but then a backward slide in others.
5: My name is Autumn Reinhardt Simpson, and I am the founder of the Alberta Abortion Access Network where I train Uh, what are known as abortion doulas in common parlance. We're abortion support workers who help clients access reproductive health care and advocate for them. A lot of people don't realize it, but Canada has a lot of the same access problems uh, back in my home country, the United States, uh, where I first began this work. I think Canadians are very shocked by this leaked memo and this idea of Roe being undermined. However, in the States, for a lot of us that have been doing this work for a long time, we've been expecting this for about the last 20 years. Anytime you have something that is considered constitutionally protected or a Supreme Court affirmed right, a group that opposes it cannot just come out and try to erase that right. So what they do is they chip away at it very slowly. And so that's what happened is ever since Roe v. Wade was enshrined in 1973, there have been groups coming out and slowly chipping away at this access. So they introduced things like trap laws, mandatory waiting periods, all these things that would just make it harder for someone to access abortion care. And what I like to say to Canadians is that you really can't be too complacent about it, even up here, even in Alberta. Here, in about uh, 2018, we had this private members' bill that was meant to expand the conscience clause, so that not only would they be protected from, um, you know, having to perform an abortion, but that the doctor who objected would not actually have to refer either. Which we already know in practice is exactly what's happening. But it's another way to sort of uh, take something that is considered an enshrined right, and just make it impossible to access. Healthcare for for women, for trans people, for non-binary people has never been a major concern of any government in this world. It's it's something that is is really fought for, and you know we fight hard. It's not something we can take for granted like men can. So to think that, you know, my friends back home will have this huge gap in the kind of healthcare that they can receive. And, you know, the U.S. has already got the highest maternal death rate of any industrialized nation. And among Black women in particular, it's it's, it's really stark. I think, especially back home, what we're seeing is a real backlash to modern ideas about gender because it's not even just Roe v. Wade, right? Now you have laws in Florida and Texas where it's against the law to get gender-affirming health care for your child. I think that what we're seeing is a lot of anxiety about changing ideas about gender, changing ideas about race, um, all kinds of different things. And to think that, you know, now we're going to attempt to force people into pregnancy and into those terrible outcomes is just, it's barbaric, it's horrible. It's it, it feels awful, but I like to think it's not the end.
2: You looked at not only the long thread of this history, but also like the global thread of this history in a book that you edited that takes into account the rollback of abortion laws, not only in the United States that this plays into, but also in, in Poland, in PEI. So I wondered if you could talk about what you're seeing in a more global sense. What is the long thread on abortion access globally?
3: Yes. Thank you for asking that question. It is impossible to talk about abortion access without speaking about it transnationally because events that happen in one region or one country will end up directly or indirectly affecting abortion access in another region or country. And women's networks play a major role in connecting women seeking abortion services with abortion providers. So I believe that that is also going to come into play. You talk about this
2: network of women finding abortion access. But I mean, then there is also this global network of anti-abortion activism. And how does that levy off one another? Because we have plenty of documented cases of anti-abortion groups funding, I think exclusively um, conservative politicians at the provincial and at the federal level. So how does that get influenced by international events? And how are those international connections indicative of how that movement goes?
3: Just as pro choice activists have international connections and, uh, in many cases, funding, so too does the anti abortion lobby. There is among the anti abortion lobby a tendency now to disregard its earlier history of violence and promote itself as a lobby that is securing women's health and securing the health of the fetus. And one of the ways in which the anti-abortion lobby can work is by passing personhood laws or constructing other laws that imply in some way, like inheritance laws, for example, or uh, violence against a woman who is pregnant, constructing laws in a certain way that will offer personhood protections to the fetus. We focus solely on the issue of abortion to our peril. Um, We need to take into consideration that those who are anti-abortion are often against many other advancements and one of those advancements is gay rights. So there is some speculation that I'm seeing already that if the U.S. Supreme Court does indeed strike down Roe versus Wade, then what's next? Well, and maybe even to make it specific,
2: I mean... I. I reported from Poland, and Poland has obviously had a lot of rollbacks of abortion access and also at the same time access or or, or safety even of LGBTQ people is very much in question. They'd spread during the last election campaign stickers in a right-wing magazine that said, like, no gay people are allowed here, and you could put these stickers up in your store and in your house and stuff. So, like, the line there was very clear, and I wondered, is that something commonly seen, like that those two are tied.
3: Poland is actually a fascinating example of backsliding in an era in which Poland supposedly became a democratic country. After 1989, when you saw the fall of the Berlin Wall, one of the very first things that the new Polish government puts on the table is restricting abortion. So One of my sort of pet theories is that the rise of the the sort of the strong man who rules a country, somebody like Donald Trump or Viktor Orban in Hungary, what's happening in Poland right now, in, in the Philippines as well, in Belarus and Putin, this is happening in many parts of the world, that when we see this strong man kind of government, we're seeing a machismo, toxic masculinity at work at the highest levels of governments. It's a fascistic kind of government that ensures a very clear divide between men and women and the roles of men and women. So something like abortion and LGBTQ rights would not be tolerated in this kind of society because abortion means a rejection of maternity and maternity is often seen as the foundational piece for a woman and heterosexuality is a foundational piece. Right, it threatens everything that they've they've built that way. Yes, it threatens the foundation of the society that they want to create and then mix into the situation, the role of Christianity, whether it's evangelical Christianity or whether it's Christian fundamentalism or a very strong Catholic focus. This is all fueling this strongman
2: framework. My last question is, we started off by talking about Henry Morgenthaler. we heard from different abortion activists throughout the episode, what is the importance of remembering and understanding the history of abortion access now?
3: To me, the lesson is very simple. The lesson is access to abortion can be taken away. It can disappear. It can be made more difficult. And so we have to... Pay attention to these stealth moves that threaten abortion services. And we also have to improve access to abortion services within a reproductive justice framework. Thank you so
2: much for your time today. I really appreciate it. That's your Canada Land. Jesse will be back next week. You can email him about this or any other content Canada Land produces. He's at jesse at canadaland.com. You can also email me. I'm at sarah at canadaland.com. You can find us on Twitter at Canada Land, and our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with the help of Cherise Suturan and Cassidy Villebrun barackis Tristan Capicone is our audio editor and technical producer. I'm Sarah Larniuk, the senior producer. Kieran Altorn is our managing editor. Music is by So Called and Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at (laughs) cfuv.ca.
0: Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co host each week, and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Matea Roach, erstwhile Haligonian, current Trontonian, bearer of a degree in sexual diversity studies and holder of the fifth longest Jeopardy streak of all time. Hello.
7: Hi, longtime listener, first time caller. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on. Uh, today on the show, we are discussing the what is kind of or ostensibly and is sort of the partway repealing of the ban on gay men giving blood in Canada. Thanks for coming on Shortcuts, where we talk about the news.
7: Thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to get into it.
4: Years in the making, the end of the blood ban. Health Canada is removing restrictions on men who have sex with men. Our government welcomes this decision. It's been a long time coming. This is a significant milestone in moving forward uh, on both the safety of our blood supply, but also uh, non-discriminatory practices.
0: So here are some headlines that ran in uh, Canadian newspapers last week. In the Toronto Star, discriminatory ban is lifted. In the National Post, blood agency to end ban on gay donors. In the Globe, Health Canada ends ban on blood donations from gay men. Uh, The Canadian press, uh, open over the wire, Canadian blood services to end gay blood ban bring in behavior-based screening. Now what would you take from those, Matea?
7: I would assume that the blood ban had been lifted and that there would not be further restrictions on gay men mm-hmm. donating blood.
0: Exactly. Very, very reasonable conclusion. Um, and, you know, while a headline can't, by definition, capture every nuance, uh, you really think that, well, yeah, the issue had been very much solved. And, yay, the liberals, the government, and the blood transfusion blood services all well, relegated this to the dustbin of history. And, you know, some activists are thrilled... But others are more measured in their enthusiasm, uh, with many arguing that it's been more of a reframing of the same thing rather than a fundamental change, sort of shifting the rules from like an explicit ban to more of an implicit one.
7: Yeah, that's what I got out of it once I read beyond headlines. Um, So when I initially found out that the blood ban was finally being struck down, I was pretty excited for about 10 minutes until I later saw, you know, some Instagram infographic being shared around by people that I had gone to undergrad with who took sexual diversity studies with me saying, you know, actually, like, they've just said that if you engage in the kind of sex that most gay men engage in, you know, there's still going to be restrictions. Mm. So I will say I do think that the new regulations are a little bit better in the sense that you can have been sexually active within the past three months. And it's only if you've engaged in anal sex with multiple partners or new partners that there is now, you know, a a ban on you donating blood. So my understanding from what I've read is that if you're like a monogamously coupled uh, gay man, or I think trans women were also sort of included under the umbrella Mm. of this ban before, you know, you would be able to donate blood even if you're sexually active. But if you're somebody who, you know, is in an open relationship who, perhaps has multiple partners regularly um, or who has, you know, started seeing somebody new, like then you're captured under this new legislation.
0: So from at least the early 90s up till 2013, men who had sex with men, even once, any time since 1977, were not eligible to donate blood in Canada. In 2013, that changed to men who had not had sex with men in the previous five years. In 2016, that period went down to one year. And in 2019, that went down to three months. Starting in the next few months... That'll change to asking all donors, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, if they've had new or multiple sexual partners in the last three months. If they say yes to either, they'll be asked if they had anal sex with any of these partners. If they have, they'll be required to wait three months from when they last had anal sex to donate. That will be the case in most of Canada, starting this likely this fall. In Quebec, it, it'll take a little bit longer because they have, for, for, reasons, for historical reasons that are actually probably very interesting, but which I didn't dive into, they have their own parallel blood agency. So anyway, this is better, yeah. But it's but it's always shifting the framework from an explicit ban to an implicit ban. It's been really tricky to find good reporting or good stories that really dive into this in the past week.
7: Yeah, I think Extra, as they often do, Mm. you know, did have some good reporting and, uh, you know, the article that they released, I think it was like Dale Smith's article. That one, I thought, did a good job of explaining how this change is going to affect different groups of people and what is materially different from before. But I think that a lot of the reporting that I saw Mm. was very celebratory and I would say unduly so. What it mm. reminded me of, and I guess reminded is a weird word because it's not like I was around when this happened. Do you remember like three years ago, the federal government started rolling out a bunch of uh, sort of commemorative content about the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization yes. of uh, gay sex, basically. Absolutely. And the thing of it is, is that if you look at scholarships surrounding the decriminalization um In 1969, of gay sex. Like, what you'll find is that, if anything, actually arrests of men having sex with men increased after the decriminalization because what happened was police cracked down on any sort of activity that did not fit within the relatively narrow parameters uh, that were laid out in law, right? So, you know, the Toronto bathhouse raids, Mm -hmm. right? That certainly happened after May 1969. That was a case of men being criminalized for having sex with men. Uh, So the notion that it, you know, was somehow okay to be gay after 1969 Mm -hmm. all of a sudden is, like, not really grounded in in historical fact. You know, this pat on the back of, aren't we we so good that we finally roof the blood ban uh without mm-hmm. really delving into specifics about what that looks like and to what extent it's materially different from the existing uh you know policy I feel like the government does this with yeah. gay issues a lot and I think that the media sometimes just goes along for the ride without really delving into the issues in greater depth
0: yeah I mean absolutely I mean liberals are excellent at symbolism, they're excellent at getting the narrative they want, they're excellent at getting the headlines they want, and very few people are equipped to really pick out the nuances and discuss the ways in which, yes, a thing might technically be true, but in all these other ways. There are still laws that criminalize this that are still on the books. Gay Men Sexual Health Alliance, it's had at least the best written thing I saw. It's a long Twitter thread. I believe it also appeared in some forms as an Instagram story. Yeah, it's a bit of it just beyond the headlines. It looks like there will be very little impact for gay men. Queer community members have been fighting for the repeal of this policy for over 15 years, so it is understandable that people would be excited about this news. While this announcement can be seen as moving in the right direction, the policy change itself is very minor. We can acknowledge the move, but cannot call it a repeal of the gay blood ban. It is merely a modification of the existing policy. After all, technically gay men could have always donated blood if we had never had sex with another man. By calling anal sex a high-risk behavior, Health Canada and Blood Services are maintaining that a single instance of anal sex, even with the condom use and PrEP use, PrEP being the preventative medication on HIV, carries a greater risk to the blood supply than hundreds or thousands of instances of vaginal sex in the same period.
7: You know, even if you're a gay person who maybe is just not in circles where these sorts of things are being discussed in depth. I think that the news might not trickle down to you until such time that maybe you actually go to donate blood and you get hit with this questionnaire uh, Mm. that's basically asking, uh, as it was put in a TikTok, I saw a TikTok from uh, Eve Parker Finley the other day, where she was joking, you know, now they're not asking, you know, have you had sex with men or are you gay? It's like, do you do butt stuff is now basically the questionnaire uh, that's being asked, right?
6: Um, When was your last relationship? Define um, relationship. Okay, so long time. Um, any butt stuff? What? Yeah, any butt stuff? I thought these questions weren't in here anymore. No, the old question was, are you gay? Now it's, do you do any butt stuff? This still feels a little icky to me.
7: Um, You know, maybe you're not going to find out until you actually go and try and donate blood and come up against this policy. So I think it's like a big failure of communications Uh, And I can see why the Liberals might want for there to be that failure of communications, because if people don't understand that it's actually a relatively small step forward, uh, it looks a lot better for them. My problem with this is, like, as you mentioned, I just am not really buying um, the logic that's being put forward by CBS of, well you know, it doesn't really matter if somebody used a condom or not because people's recall is not that good of whether or not they used mm-hmm. one or, well, what if there is improper use? And the thing is, is that they're not even asking people who are engaging in vaginal or oral sex, whether mm-hmm. they're using protection or what they're doing. But even if they were, right, like we accept that there's improper use there mm-hmm. and that's a risk that we deem to be acceptable. So I understand that there is higher risk of HIV transmission with anal sex. Mm-hmm. But given the fact that the blood is being tested and given the fact mm-hmm. that there is You know, some amount of risk that we accept whenever we're accepting donations into the blood supply. To me, it seems as though keeping this restriction is really just a vestige of, I think, homophobia and uh, specifically, like, HIV-related stigma towards gay men.
0: Yeah, they test all blood for HIV, There's also always a possibility that some could get through because there's a short window in which it's not detectable. They estimate that this change would increase the risk from one per 25.9 million donations to one per 20.7 million donations, a difference which they describe as being, in reality, not meaningful or significant. The fractions we're talking about are so wildly small.
7: I see a couple of problems uh, with, you Mm -hmm. know, the the new rules that are going to come into force. One is that I think just the questions that are going to be asked are, if anything, like perhaps more invasive than the ones before. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, given that they're asking about very specific sex acts, and they're going to be asking that not just to gay men, but they're going to be expanding who they ask those questions to, to a number of different people. And given that Canadian Blood Services already has such difficulty getting enough people to donate blood uh, so that they have the supply that they need in order to serve Canadians. Like, I don't know that asking more invasive questions that are possibly going to dissuade people from donating blood, just because it's uncomfortable and, like, I'm not sure how employees are going to be trained on, like, how to ask these things sensitively, I just don't see any real evidence that I've heard that it, you know, that's the threshold past which we can't liberalize things any further when it comes to blood donation.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have, I mean, that's slightly bit of insight of how this is, thanks to Justin Ling, who wrote a thing for Vice But a year and a half ago, got some stuff from Freedom of Information. It largely confirms what we kind of suspected, but basically, at the time, they were worried that switching to gender-neutral behavior-based screening, as they have, would result in an excessive loss of currently donating safe donors, if all donors are subject to the same set of questions and criteria. He also found that they had caught uh, 24 cases of HIV-positive blood, and they found those that had been screened out, and then they followed up to try to figure out where the screening at earlier stages had failed. Out of the 11 who responded, one was HIV positive and clearly ineligible. One donor had a single same-sex encounter, which he'd forgotten and may not have been the source of his contracting the virus. And another donor had an HIV-positive partner. Five of those HIV-positive donors, however, did not acknowledge any risk, while three heterosexual donors reported multiple sexual partners but were not eligible to donate. They didn't do a good job screening for uh, hepatitis C or HIV in the mid-'80s. They brought in testing too late. And a lot of people who received blood transfusions, uh, many of whom are hemophiliacs or maybe a large portion of hemophiliacs, uh, contracted HIV and AIDS and Pepsi. And so a lot of the policies we've seen since have sort of come out of that in a fear of like, you know, basically very much erring on the side of caution, which I guess also kind of makes sense when you're talking about blood transfusions. Yeah, I guess how to manage that. And so with hence coming up with this blanket ban that's gradually been whittled away and now still has these strange, what I guess now is a vestige Mm -hmm. of that, which is still problematic even if it's no longer explicitly discriminatory. I think that a
7: lot of the conversations that we see around uh, the blood ban are rooted in this visceral fear that people still have of the concept of HIV.
0: You know, as you brought up a few minutes ago about the liberals celebrating the 50th anniversary of the supposed or ostensible decriminalization of homosexuality. And I mean, maybe that's what the liberals have been doing for a very long time, is they've been taking sort of these key symbolic steps that are not meaningless by any means. I mean, they they, they have... They do have some weight, but that certainly allows them to avoid tackling the a lot of thornier, trickier problems that maybe don't always have a straightforward solution, but certainly don't always have a as politically easy solution. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to avoid talking about the ways in which homosexuality and queerness remains criminalized and people who engage in certain sexual behaviors remain subject to the laws in ways that other types of... Sexual behaviors that are otherwise legal uh, and consenting sexual behaviors don't.
7: It's been a very proud tradition, I think, of the liberal government to make these sort of small advances, whether it comes to women's rights, whether it comes to uh, expansion of rights for queer and trans people, and to celebrate those small advances while perhaps ignoring, as you said, those thornier issues and glossing over the ways in which those rights are still really limited.
0: It's hard to make a heritage moment out of a half measure, but they kind of... They've kind of succeeded. They
7: try really hard. They've been working really hard at it.
0: (laughs) So that is Shortcuts for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Matea.
7: Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to get to talk about something that was not me being on television.
0: <laughs> we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email Jesse, the usual host of the show, at jesse at Candaland.com, or if you really like, you can email me at jonathan at Candaland.com. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby, or you can also listen to me on the Wag the Dog podcast, which is our Ontario politics podcast I co-host with Alvin Smith. We're going weekly for the duration of the Ontario election, with our first of these weekly episodes coming out on Friday. Matea, where can people find you?
7: People can find me on Yes TV tonight at, I believe, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. They can also find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. That's M-A-T-T-E-A-R-O-A-C-H. If you want to read updates about my time on Jeopardy! and occasional... Other stuff from me.
0: This episode is produced by Viva Lazard, with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our theme music is by Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca.